0: So, Father, we do pray for this class tonight in Acts chapter 8. And we ask for you to bless us, teach us, lead us, quicken us, um, give us a growing understanding with the big picture and also enjoying some of the details of these chapters. And bless our time tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, just a quick reflection. Acts chapter 7, we, we just mentioned it in review. Uh, The first martyr, and this was really um, uh, kicks off what is going to be seen as the great persecution of Acts chapter 8. Um, And Acts chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, this is a transitional. These chapters in the middle of the book is a transition. You'll see that we are moving from Jerusalem to what's going to be the, the new mission central church, Antioch. We're moving from Peter to Paul, and we're moving from the Jews to the Jews and the Gentiles. So there's a transition that's happening, moving away from Jerusalem. Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. So that transition we're seeing happening as well, here in Acts 8. It's going from Jerusalem, now we're going to start seeing the fulfillment of the commit that commission in Acts one eight when the when you receive the Spirit you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. Remember the uh, when when the apostles were before before being at standing trial they said you have filled this city with your doctrine, which is an indication that the mission in Jerusalem is really being successful. But now they're going to be pushed out by persecution in the timing of and the way of God uh, out to the other areas and and eventually to the other most parts of the world. And we even see that with the Ethiopian at the end of the chapter, the far-reaching, far-reach of the gospel. So, let's just have a quick look at the outline. If we're looking at this chapter, uh, where are we here? Chapter 8. The first few verses open with this Persecution. Uh, then we see the preaching of the the believers and the effect of that verse 4 through eight we see the events that are going to happen in Samaria um, uh, and that's uh, and then we particularly with uh, Philip and the revival that takes place in Samaria uh, people getting saved and then the last verses focus on that wonderful uh, story that we love Philip and the and the Ethiopians so we'll jump in in verse. One here, let's read the the text. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. And of course, this connects right to the end of chapter 7. Stephen is martyred. We just finished last week with that incredible scene, him looking, gazing up into heaven with the face of an angel. They rush upon him. They drag him out of the city. They stone him. And those that stoned him laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul, and that's where Saul is introduced. And so this connects right to that verse, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And um, this is a young Pharisee. We know him to be a Pharisee from other scriptures. And um, he was consenting. It could literally be he was giving his vote to his death, possibly indicating that he may be a, even have been a member of the Sanhedrin. But definitely he was a man of, of, um, who had a voice, who had, some, who had some authority. He gave his consent or his vote. And he was a witness all the way through chapter 7. He would have heard Stephen's incredible testimony, that amazing message unfolding the gospel and bringing the precise light of really accusation to them that you rejected the Messiah, you crucified the Messiah. Um, so, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now notice they were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. When we go back to Acts one eight, which is our key verse, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. And now you see these words: they were scattered to the next two areas, Judea. Samaria except the apostles. So um, uh, we're going to see the glorious irony of the one who is leading the persecution, Saul of Tarsus, who will become the Apostle Paul, Uh, such a key uh, character uh, all the way through the New Testament, author of half of the epistles and uh the, the the missionary journeys in the in the last half of the book this incredible character is raised up and we see him introduced right in this opening verse but he's the persecutor of the faith that he will come to love and defend and preach and ultimately die for. Um, he witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen and tradition tells us that he was beheaded under the last uh Roman persecution under Nero not the last, sorry, the Roman persecution under Nero. Um, And there's a few other comparisons we could make between Paul and Stephen. Um, The Jews disputed with them both, resisted both of them in the synagogue. Um, Both of their testimony and their teaching was rejected. Both were accused of blasphemy, speaking against Moses and the holy place and the customs. Both of them were rushed on with one accord. We'll see that with Paul in in later in Acts. Both of them were dragged out of the city, tried before the Sanhedrin. Um, Stephen, remember, is the third case of before the Sanhedrin, and Paul will be the final fourth one. Both stand before the Sanhedrin. Both were stoned to death because we remember um, on the first missionary journey, Paul is actually dragged out of Lystra and stoned. Um, and we believe that uh, th- there's a miraculous event where he is brought revived from the dead in that point. So both are stoned, both ultimately are martyred. And both of them, of course, personally beheld Christ. So there's an irony there that Saul, who is consenting to the death of Stephen, who is vehemently opposed to everything that Stephen stands for, and is now going to start this incredible persecution and get letters of authority to go to Damascus and be dragging people out of their house houses and persecuting and unto the death will be the one who will ultimately fulfill the the commission and and uh, take the gospel to the Gentiles. So. This first great persecution is against the Jerusalem church. Remember, by now, thousands and thousands had come to Christ. We saw that in the opening chapters. Uh, now, uh, Satan is allowed to touch uh, the church. Why? Well, because Satan hates the work of God and, and would would touch and oppose anything that stands for Christ. Um, but also, this was allowed in the providential plan of God to help the church Go out from Jerusalem to to fulfil Acts one eight, and they are scattered. Um, this is the the word here. They are dispersed like seed, a dispersal like a, like grabbing a handful of seed and scattering them out. And this is what happened to the disciples, the dis, the dispersion from Jerusalem. So uh, Stephen. Uh, of course, we 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 see uh, in the opening verses here. There's great lamentation. They carry Stephen out uh, for his burial, and S- Stephen that that chapter closes with Stephen's martyrdom. We could ask the question: Oh, it seems that Stephen had so much potential, this young man with a calling and vehemency, and his life was cut short in the prime. And what a waste! Um, and we understand that type of reasoning, but on the other hand, um, Stephen's ministry and message and life was certainly not wasted, um, uh, but, but really did bear fruit. It led ultimately to the persecution that followed and the scattering of the believers, the, the birth of churches, um, and ultimately the conversion of Paul. Paul on his way to Damascus in the dispersion, and again, that was ignited by by Stephen, so um, it did bear much fruit. We could think of countless missionary stories where it would seem as though the life of these th- that particular missionary was fruitless or wasted, um, but but often that's not the case. It 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 serves as a spark, which perhaps not immediately, perhaps a generation later, but it will spark a revival that would take place. Remember the story of um, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. They went, uh, and the, this is considered one of the greatest tragedies at the time, of modern missions. It was in the 50s, I think, and they landed on a beach in Ecuador. Uh, there were three of them in this little plane. They were trying to reach these unreached, uh, hostile uh South American tribe, and on landing at the beach, trying to make contact, they were slaughtered. Uh, Young men, I think in their 20s maybe, uh, trained missionaries, left wives and children. It was a horrific uh, uh, event. Um, However, uh, and there's a movie that's made on it, uh, End of the Spear, and books that have been written uh, Shadow of the Almighty and Through the Gates of Splendor, etc. These amazing books accounting the missionary stories. And the wives and the friends of those that died uh, continued the ministry and finally broke through and got the gospel to these Indians. And the, a church was planted and it went to the next tribe and there was an incredible work of God that t- took place. So um, we we understand that the the... Again, that phrase that we read it connected to the Church's Book of Martyrs that says, the seed of the Church is the blood of the martyrs um, and the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail. So anyway, a little diversion there. But they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria because of the, the persecution. But it notice the last phrase, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And this is not a negative comment, this is a positive comment. In the face of persecution, they decided to stay like faithful watchmen. Um, There were still many souls to confirm and to teach and to baptize. There was still a church there, a persecution, but still a church that remained. And the apostles, um, later they leave Jerusalem, but initially uh, they stayed there. Um, We have to remember uh, that it wasn't, after the day of Pentecost, everything changed, and even the apostles um, uh, understood uh, what was happening from the Jew to the Gentile and going out to missions. I mean, there were lots of things that, that God needed to do to help the cause and to help them in the work. Uh, the persecution is an example of that. Both Peter and Paul, God had to give them direct visions relating to the gospel going to the gentiles etc so um there was a lot that needed to happen it wasn't overnight there's a progressive there's a few years that are passing in these transitional chapters uh, chapter verse 2 says and devout men carried Stephen to his burial so again Stephen has passed the persecution will now continue and the focus is going to pass on to this man named Saul verse 3 he made havoc of the church Entering in every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This term here, to make havoc, uh, it's only used here in the New Testament. It has extra-biblical uses, um, where it's used to describe a wild boar tearing up the vineyard. And this is what Saul is pictured doing, just f- viciously, ferociously wanting to attack the church, tearing it up by the roots. He passionately wanted to extinguish this, this anti, what he considered to be an anti Jewish sect that was against the temple and Moses and our customs, etc. He wanted, he believed, and Jesus predicted this, I think it's John 16. He says, Those who persecute you. Don't be surprised if they persecute you, they persecuted me. And the time will come that those who persecute you will think that they are doing a service to God. And that's what Saul of Tarsus thought. He thought he was doing a service to God to extinguish uh, the the Christians. Um, In Galatians one twenty-three and 24, the last verses there, are amazing verses that show that um, they, they found it hard to believe that Saul of Tarsus, this was a, a figurehead of, uh, not a figurehead, but a, a leading head in the persecution. This was a name to be feared among the little home Bible studies in Damascus and, and in the growing church. When they heard that Saul of Tarsus had been converted, and not only that, but had now become a primary leader, a powerful preacher and teacher, uh, it says that they, they, they were in wonder. That the persecutor had now become the preacher of the faith that he had persecuted. Um, there's two other times in the book of Acts where Paul's testimony is recounted. It's in Acts 22 and 26, and in in that in those recounts of his testimony, he says in 22:4, "I persecuted this way, which is a name for Christianity, the way." I persecuted this way unto death. In verse 19 and 20, I imprisoned them and beat them. And also he reflects on it in Acts 26, 10 and 11 and 1st Timothy 1, speaking about persecuting the church. This was something that he reflected on. I'm sure the devil would accuse him of it in his past, but it was something that he realized that of course there had been forgiveness for and God had given him amazing grace. And actually using him as a trophy of grace. That he wasn't only a a messenger of grace, but a very testimony of grace. So a trophy of grace. That he was a model of what grace really means. That God would take Saul and make him Paul. Incredible message in itself. Entering every house and dragging off. Imagine men and women committing them to prison. Makes us think of uh, Nazi Germany and things that were going on, going through uh, the homes. These Roman soldiers dragging people out indiscriminately, uh, putting them to the, putting questions to them about their faith, or maybe just by hearsay, and he says, "To the death, to the death." Uh, verse four, and therefore those who were scattered—we read the word again—scattered, dispersed, went everywhere preaching the word starts with the word, therefore. So here we can see a cause and effect. Because of this persecution, therefore, they went out scattered and they were preaching Um, the persecution, the scattering, and then the preaching. That's the order. And preaching here, evangelizzo, uh, to preach the good news, to herald, to declare the good news. So this effort to oppose the church, even to destroy the church, only caused the gospel to uh, to be fulfilled in its in its purpose Jesus said you will be witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the world and that's exactly what is happening to the frustration of the of the devil imagine uh, he, he just trying to do one thing and the complete opposite is happening verse 5 and then Philip now we're introduced to the second of the seven. Remember Acts 6, seven men who were chosen in, in kind of like the form of a deacon, servants in the church. Stephen was the first who was martyred. He takes up most of Acts 7. And now Philip is going to be the primary character here in, in, in 8. This, in, uh, amazing, amazing man. He's a, he's a, we could say a deacon or a servant. And he, um, ultimately is going to become an evangelist. We see actually in 21.8, he is titled Philip the Evangelist. Um, and 6.3 tells us he was one of the men who was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Um, if we look at this quick map, um, this is, of course, Jerusalem is, is here. So directly north we have Samaria. And, um, And this is where the revival breaks out after the dispersion. This is where we read. And then Philip is going to be told to, he goes to Samaria, and afterwards he's going to be told to come down here on the road to Gaza. We'll pick up there in a minute. But this is where Samaria is, uh, Samaria directly north of Jerusalem. So this is verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, you might wonder why it says down to Samaria when Samaria is directly north. When you go to Jerusalem or Israel, you realize wherever you are coming from in Israel, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. And if you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down. So that's same language here in the Bible. They say it today. We're going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter which direction you're coming from, but you always ascend to Jerusalem. So... Um, so Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. Uh, and he preached Christ to who? The Samaritans. Now, uh, that's uh, familiar to us through John four. Remember, Jesus himself it says that he he it said he must needs or he had to. It was necessary for him to go to Samaria. And actually, that was uncommon for the Jew. Traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee, et cetera, to go through Samaria, because as verse 9, I think it is, John 4, 9, I think it is, tells us the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. There was great cultural and religious hostility between the two, particularly to the Jew, from the Jews to the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't believe in the temple and other, other certain things. They were a mixed race. Um, uh, and, and despised by the Jews, had nothing to do with them. And of course, Jesus had that wonderful encounter with the woman at the well, and then that even bore fruit to the many who were gathered in that city in Samaria. And now the Lord sends Peter, uh, sorry, Philip, to that same place. Um, the Samaritans, of course, were also, they were a mixed race, but they had beliefs that had jewish roots they were also waiting for the messiah you may remember she said to jesus when the messiah comes he will tell us all things so there was a messianic expectation among perhaps in her own heart and 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 the people that met the lord that day Um, Mm -hmm. she went into the town declaring is this not the messiah is this not the christ so they understood the messiah was to come. And this is what Philip preached to them. It says he preached... Oops. He went to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, preached the Messiah. And of course, saying Jesus is the Messiah. Um, so verse 6, And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, remember, almost exclusively, all of the healings and the miracles are done only by the hands of the apostles. We don't read of, of other believers doing miracles or laying on hands and seeing healings like that, except for the apostles and two others. One of them is Stephen, of course, who was closely associated with the apostles, and perhaps they were there at that time. And the other is here with Philip. Uh, no other cases are, are do we see that. Um, but this is, a, again, an important time. This is a transitional time. The canon of Scripture is not complete. They don't have the New Testament here. Uh, the gospel is only going out by word and mouth through the apostles. And for their ministry to be accompanied with signs and miracles and wonders, helped validate them as messengers and help validate the message. And as it is here with Philip in this case also. And verse 8 says, there was great joy in that city. It's a short verse, but a beautiful verse. Because we know that joy accompanies salvation. When someone really understands that they have heard and embraced the gospel and that they are now saved, of course there is great Uh, joy, not only because of the healings, but because of uh, Christ being preached unto them. Um, We read that later in Acts 16, when the jailer and his family get saved, it says they rejoiced greatly having believed in God. So, verse uh, 9 and uh, 10 and 11, let's read those verses. But there was a certain man, so, This word, but, um, introduces a new aspect of the story. Here is Philip, the preaching, the miracles, sorry. The preaching, the miracles is happening, great joy in the city, but it introduces this, this side story, a new character. A certain man named Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So, this man was a, a sorcerer. Either, either, either they were... Lying signs and wonders that we read about in Second Thessalonians two nine, that are a demonic counterfeit of the miracles that were being done by the apostles, or he was a trickster, a very charismatic man, or whatever. But he he had captivated the people for a long time. They were giving heed to his his uh, um, life, his words, his miracles, and um, and there's going to be a kingdom clash right here. Um, Simon was a satanic instrument in the lives of these Samaritans. They all followed him because he'd astonished them for a a long time. And he was claiming, notice in the verse there it says, claiming he was someone great. Perhaps claiming that he was a Messiah or or an anointed one of some kind or claiming deity. Um, And this is where the Lord sent Philip, right into this... uh, into this place. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So here we see again, going back to Philip, the fruitfulness, the res- people are responding, getting saved, and now Philip is also baptizing um, uh, people. Uh, verse 13. And then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs that were done. Now you'll read commentaries on this, or you'll hear different opinion on this: whether Simon really got saved or not, um, whether it was a whether it was a, a not a saving faith. Uh, but the verb here is pistuo, it's the verb to believe. We, we haven't any reason really to assume that he didn't really get saved, um, apart from the fact that that Peter, with a gift of discernment, is able to, to uh, name certain things about Simon afterwards. But it doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't saved. It's one of those points you can read different views on it. We'll find out in heaven, I guess, see if he's there or not. But anyway... Um, uh, yeah, in the following verses, Peter will seem to denounce him. If, if this is a case of a, a faith that is not a, a true faith unto salvation, then in this chapter we have an incredible example of both, in Simon and then in the Ethiopian at the end of the chapter. One is a true faith to salvation, sorry, one is not a true faith to salvation, but the other one is. But but either way. So, verse uh, 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So again, notice, they had received the word of God. Incredible reception and revival was happening. And the word gets back to Jerusalem. Someone sends them an email and they find out about it, right? So, so remember the cultural and religious barrier between Jew and Samaritan. But in the church with the apostles, they hear, have you heard what's happening after the persecution, the dispersion? Philip went into Samaria and, uh, which area? I don't know. Some area. No, no, Samaria. I'm just kidding. Went to Samaria and there's a revival. People are getting saved. Really? Okay. Let's send Peter and John. And of course, these are the two key apostles in the church in Jerusalem. Galatians 3.9 says that Peter, James and John became pillars of the church. Although this is in fact the last time we hear of John in the book of Acts, um, we would assume that he is present in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem council, but either way we know he's the last apostle to live. He's he's yet to going to write five Uh, Books of the Bible, the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So he's still a key character. But this is the last we hear of John. But Peter and John are sent from Jerusalem to Samaria to check it out. Verse 15. Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is a very curious verse. uh, It's a problem for many Bible commentators. People struggle about what this actually means, how to interpret it. um, Because they had believed in Jesus, that's what it says. They had been water baptized and yet they had not the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. Um, there are whole movements in Christianity that, from this verse, uh, particularly, teach the second baptism, and also in from Acts, uh, uh, Acts 10, they teach the second baptism. That you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit, but after that, there should be some spiritual experience or empowerment that you will you will have to follow. You may not have that experience at the moment of salvation, but it will follow. They call that the second baptism. Um, and that's not something that we hold to in our doctrine or our teaching. Um, people are free to have their own views on it, but, uh, but um, I, I have seen a lot of people uh, get confused and hurt by that type of uh, um, uh, teaching. I remember this year... In June, we were doing a baptism at a swimming pool, open air in Budapest. About 20-something people were getting baptized. It was a glorious day. And at the end, there was a guy who was cleaning the pool. And he saw the whole event. And he came up to us afterwards and he says, Oh, I'm a Christian. Really? Yes, I go to the... He he went to the big charismatic church in Budapest. I said, Oh, wonderful. And he said, Yes, sir. He says, "I I am a Christian, but I am waiting for the Holy Spirit. I said, "How long have you been a Christian?" I've been a Christian for three years, and I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit. And I, and I said to him, "I said, oh, you, you do not to you do not need to be waiting for what you already have. The Bible says you have the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit the moment you were saved. You you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are not where anyway. And here is this guy who is waiting." And and uh, and not not at rest to enjoy his relationship and his Christianity, but there's a question mark, and and his 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 spiritual life is not yet complete. Um. Someone said to me once, "Do you believe in the in the second baptism?" And I said, "Well, by a by a second baptism, do you mean some empowering spiritual experience?" And they said, yes. And I said, oh, in that case, I believe in the second baptism. And they were, oh, okay. And I said, and I believe in the third baptism and the fourth baptism and the fifth. <laughs> I, mean, I was joking with them. But meaning, of course, we can have, there will be times where we will sense the anointing and the presence of God. We will be quickened and touched and changed and broken. But I do not term that. Or equate that with the coming of the Holy Spirit or the special baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is just part of our, our, our life and blessings with God. That is not a doctrine that, uh, that we would hold to. So, um, because this is what uh, they say. They say, uh, salvation you are indwelt but you're waiting for a second empowering experience. They make a distinction between the indwelling and the coming of the Holy Spirit, coming upon you. They say that these are like two events. But notice that Acts 1.8, what does it say? Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you will receive power to be witnesses. And that event, when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts 2, is the same event when the church was born and they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So the coming upon and the indwelling, in my understanding, is the same event. They're not two separate events. So we need to explain then why this is happening. Why was it that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon these Samaritan believers? And um, we can only draw our own conclusions to it because it's not spelled out for us. But um, but let's let's uh, let's suggest this. Um, remember, this is a everything is new. Everything that's happening is new for these believers. There are cultural barriers and differences between the Jews, the Samaritans, and particularly even the, the Gentiles. And there's a lot that God has to do to help the Jewish believers understand the gospel going also to the Gentiles and the whole world. It's not an overnight thing. Remember, the vision that God is going to give Peter in Acts 10, three times in the vision, Peter resists and says no 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 when it says rise uh, rise up and eat and Peter says no 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 three times just like Peter denied the Lord three times he denies the Holy Spirit three times in that vision because he, he struggled as a Jew to come to terms with what the Lord wanted to do and that was also to reach the Gentiles so in this situation also there is something that God needs to show So we could say, okay, did the Holy Spirit not come upon them for the sake of the Jews? For the sake of the apostles from Jerusalem? For the sake of the Samaritans? And I would say, yes, all of the above. Because the Samaritans needed to see and understand the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem where Acts 2, Pentecost happened, where the church was born. And the apostles in Jerusalem needed to see that what happened to the Samaritans was the same Holy Spirit and the same event that had happened to them. In other words, that for them to all see we are unified in Christ. We are part of the same church. So I think that there was a a, a powerful meaning and lesson both for the apostles and also for for the Samaritans. So... We do not get our doctrine from the book of Acts. We get our doctrine from the epistles that were written to the churches. The book of Acts is very beautiful but unique history at a transitional time. For us to take a verse out of the book of Acts and say, oh, this should be happening now for us in our church experience is very dangerous territory. Um, We we understand that there is a lot of transition uh, happening here. So... If they had received the Holy Spirit straight away, if the Samaritans had just believed and got saved and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and it could have been that the division that already lay between the Jews and the Samaritans would have continued. But in this way, it brought beautiful unity. They were clear that they were all one in Christ. Um, we're going to see the same kind of thing in, in, uh, with the Gentiles in, in Acts uh, 10. It's also a good note to mention that remember in uh, in Matthew sixteen, after the great confession of Peter, where he confesses, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God," and the Lord says, "Oh, blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven." And then he says, uh, "And then he says, upon this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, and upon this rock, upon the revelation of who I am." I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Remember that? And keys do what? They open doors. And Peter is used with the, with, the, um, with the gospel going to the Jews, which is in Acts 2, here to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and also Peter is used going to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Notice that. 2, 8 and 10. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the, and the outermost parts of the world. Peter had the keys. Peter was instrumental in taking the gospel to those different people groups. So, again, and we can see Acts 1.8 uh, echoed through that. Okay, verse 18. And when Simon saw, we go back to the other sorcerer character that we were introduced to. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Um, Maybe a little footnote. Perhaps there was an indication that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that here, but how would he know that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit? We could say through joy or, or through whatever. But perhaps they also spoke in languages As they did in Acts chapter 2, but it does not say that here, but I don't have a problem with someone saying they did because I do not equate the languages of Acts 2 with the unknown charismatic tongue that's practiced in churches today. So for me it's fine if they say they must have spoken tongues because how would they have known, how would Simon known they were filled with the Holy Spirit? But again, for me, the book of Acts tongues is known languages, crystal clear from Acts 2. So, Simon offers money, and actually the term we have, simony, or simony, however you want to pr- pronounce it, uh, which is the term for the buying and selling of church offices, or powers, or positions, or authority, comes from this character, simony, or simony. Uh, verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of, your, of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Um, And some make an indication that that means he didn't really get saved. But but it's for you to decide. 22. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see, and this is Peter's discernment, that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So, Um, Peter tells him to repent. But we don't read that he repents. We don't actually hear his repentance. We only hear him say in verse 24, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So Peter told him to repent, and we didn't hear that he does. Peter also tells him to pray and he responds by asking Peter to pray for him. It's interesting. Throws it back to him. But perhaps this is a moment of humility and perhaps he repents. We, we don't know. Only God will know. Um, but there are valuable lessons uh, uh, anyway in this passage um, uh, regarding, regarding this, the coming of the Spirit. Verse 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, this is Peter and John, They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Oh, this is beautiful. Um, They preached the word. What did they do? They preached. Where? In the villages of the Samaritans. Again, this is an incredible step forward. Now these Jewish believers, disciples, apostles, are going through the villages of the Samaritans and preaching Christ to them beautiful Um, they testified and witnessed just as Jesus again going back to Acts 1-8 you will be witnesses unto me Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and here it is happening we would love to hear more about that but that's all it gives us they were preaching through the villages in Samaria Now, we go on to the last little story here, verse 26. This is Philip and the Ethiopian. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now, think of it. This is Philip in the midst of revival. All of these people getting saved and miracles and baptisms and Peter and John have just come. And now... He is instructed to to leave. That's quite something. He's not even told where or why he's going to go. He's just told, go down towards the desert. God doesn't give him full specifics. He just gives him enough light to make the next step of faith. Um, It's an amazing example of a couple of things. Number one, God sending a Christian to an unbeliever. It's also a beautiful example insight given into how God leads us. Maybe He will only give us the first step. He doesn't say, listen, I want you to go down to the road to Gaza and then I want you to go here and you're going to meet this person. And No, He just says, go. And we read the words, so He arose and He went. Beautiful. Sometimes God will only give the first step. I remember when we uh, prayerfully uh, before the Lord, looking for His leading, knew that we were to come to England, and that's all we knew. That was the first step. And as time was moving on, we were we were continually trying to rest in faith and looking to God. Okay, God, we're going to England. We don't know what it means or where or how. And then, but we were making the move and we sold up and tied loose ends up and we're moving. And then the door opened. Praise the Lord. Um, let's have another look at the map. So here's Samaria. And Philip is told to go down to this region, down to the road down to Gaza. So that's where we're looking at. So verse 27, so he arose and he went and behold a man of Ethiopia. There it is. Oh, beautiful. Look at that faith. He went and behold, there was the answer a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So these are regions, if you think of, of course, uh, this is the Mediterranean. If we went all the way over here, we we would see Egypt and past way, way south of Egypt, we would come into the continent of Africa. And Ethiopia could be specifically Ethiopia or Libya, it could have been anywhere in that region, but perhaps 1,000, 1,200 miles, this very clearly, a seeker, had come to Jerusalem to worship. The sad thing is that he left Jerusalem still a seeker and really hadn't found uh, what he was looking for until, of course, he meets Philip right here. Um, verse 28... And he was returning. So he come to Jerusalem and he's returning. He's sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Um, and we, we know from the verses that he was reading Isaiah 53, which perhaps is the most clear evangelical picture of Christ. When you read Isaiah 53, and if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to read the whole passage, which the Ethiopian obviously had done, But at the moment Philip hears him, he just quotes verse 7 and 8, but he's obviously reading the whole passage with the question in his heart, who is the prophet speaking about? And um, when you read that passage, in fact, I I read a story about a man who printed out Isaiah, about the the ten main verses of Isaiah, put them on a piece of blank paper, went around his office place at work and said, listen, read that and tell me, who do you think it's written? Who do you think it's speaking about, and where do you think it's written? And people would say, well, it's obviously it's speaking about Christ on the cross, and, and where is it written? Well, it's in the Bible. Where, where specifically? I don't know, in the New Testament somewhere. You say, it's writing it's about Christ, but it's in the Old Testament. It's 700 years before Christ. And when you read the passage, it's as if someone is standing before the cross, describing what they see. Incredible prophetic passage. And that's what he's reading with the question, who is this written about? Oh, so beautiful. And uh, verse 29. And then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. Now notice, this is the second step of definition. Now Philip is mobilized by faith and God now gives him more definition. But first he had to take a step of faith and now God gives him the specifics. It's a wonderful principle. The second step is given after the first is taken. So we read, we had read Philip arose and went and now the definition comes. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, "Do you understand what you're reading?" Because Philip Philip's thinking in his heart because I would love to explain it to you. <laughs> you know? And he said to him, verse 31, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is a wonderful principle that we, we need to be guided through the Scriptures. Uh, we need a teacher, a pastor. I think of the men that God put in my own life to guide me as a new believer and all through the years being taught and opening the Scriptures and how that is such a blessing that God gives in, in our life. In Nehemiah chapter 8, it speaks of the uh, Ezra and the and the Levites giving the sense of the scriptures, it says, and then the people had joy because they understood. So he asked him to come up into the chariot, and listen, think of this, oh, what a blessing it it, it is if God gives us the opportunity to take a seat with someone who just says, tell me, tell me the gospel. Can you explain this to me? and 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 perhaps we 've had those uh those uh situations sometimes you go up to someone on the street and um, and and they 're like, "Oh, I was just uh, i don 't know in my heart i 've never prayed before, but in my heart, I just said, Oh god if you 're there, I want to know you and then that day you meet them on the street or something it 's incredible that God does that type of thing and what a blessing to be able to to be the messenger for them and verse thirty uh, uh, verse thirty uh 1 here, or oh, is that verse 32? Uh, sorry, I think I got the wrong numbers there. That's verse 32. The place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, verse 33, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. One of the clearest passages speaking of the suffering servant. So the eunuch, verse 34, answered Philip and said, and here's his question, I ask you, whom does the prophet say this of, himself or some other man? Who is it that will bear our iniquity? Who is this lamb that went to the slaughter, who bore our sins? Who is this that the Lord smote him for the iniquity of all? Please tell me. And so Verse 35, And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture preached Jesus unto him. Oh, what a beautiful verse that is. Imagine the uh, anointing of the uh, the messenger, the Scriptures, the open heart, the Gospel uh, coming to light in that man's life as he finds Christ personally as his Savior. There's no greater miracle than that one. Um, and... Uh, Verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Now this tells us that obviously Philip had not only preached Christ from the passage and explained to him salvation, but even taught about baptism um, and what baptism represents, that it's an outward symbolic act of the inward Reality of your salvation. He taught him that. So they're going along and suddenly they see water uh, there in in that desert region and he says, here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? Um, He had received and believed as he listened and he asked that question. And then verse 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So, from this verse, we can see the only condition given for baptism is if you believe. Now, that's not to say there can't be some wisdom applied in in the church structure, and and we, we want people to really understand, not only to say, oh, I believed in Christ, but to really understand what that, decision in Christ means what their salvation means that they're in Christ they died with him they are buried with him they rose with him of course we we would love there to be some teaching and discipleship but almost every example of baptism in the Bible first of all there's no baby baptisms in the Bible in the New Testament they're all adult baptisms we call them or believer baptisms if you like meaning that you it's not your parents' decision for you to get baptized when you're a baby, although myself and perhaps many of us were christened or baptized. Uh, it's not your parents' decision, it's your decision. And you can't make that decision when you're a baby, so we call it believer's baptism or adult baptism. When you come to a place in your life when, oh, I understand the gospel. I was lost and now I'm found. Christ is my Savior. And your baptism, your water baptism is your testimony of your understanding of that reality that's taking place in your life. And there's a reason that God, it was God's idea, tells us to baptize believers. And it's because if you've ever been to one, oh, how clear, how beautiful, how powerful, how graphic. Oh, glory to God in a baptism. Because everyone who's watching it, well, not everyone, but most of the the church, understands what it represents. It represents the greatest thing that could ever happen in a person's life, that they got saved. So when we see a baptism, that that is an outward celebration of this person's salvation. And we all say amen to that. How wonderful. And uh, so if you haven't been water baptized as an adult, I charge you in the name... No, I encourage you with all the weight of these precious verses that you make that decision. You say, well, I've been in the church for so long. I've been a believer for so long. It's too late for me to get baptized. No. Get baptized to the glory of God and, and it will be a wonderful blessing for you and for the church. Uh, and by the way, some churches practice sprinkling, water sprinkling. We were we had a baptism in the Jordan last year... Uh, Last year or two years ago, in uh, we were baptizing a Chinese brother in the Jordan, and when you go down to the Jordan, there are there are these sections so that the busloads of churches come and everyone wants to get baptized in the Jordan, you know. And uh, busloads they come down to these little steps and they go down. Some of them long white robes, and some of them choirs, and all different expressions of churches. It's a beautiful thing, and um, we were next to this Chinese church, funny enough. And and I was with a whole mix of Hungarians and Americans and Chinese, and it was a Chinese brother we were baptizing. So, so they baptize their guy, and they take him down to the Jordan, and the guy cups his hand like this, and we baptize you in the. Na- and I said, "You're going under, brother. <laughs> we don't sprinkle. We full immersion." And we can see that here because let, let's read the verses. Um, sorry, I'm, we're going to we're going to close. God bless you. So. Uh, uh, so he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And verse 39, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. And this term, caught away, is is the word harpazo, the Greek word harpazo? It means to snatch away. Uh, the Latin equivalent is rapio. It's where we get the word, the theological term rapture. We get the idea, the rapture of the church, the snatching away of the church. It comes from this Greek word. Um, people say, "Well, the word rapture is not in the Bible." Well, it's a translation issue. It's it's a, it's a it's a the the word is there, but it's transliterated. But anyway. Um, and it's used many different places. So he is literally snatched away. This is used 11 times in the Scriptures, in different places, uh, being snatched away, where um, Paul was caught up into the third heaven, in different places. And of course, the rapture itself, First Thessalonians 4, uh, the church will be snapped away. And he went on his way rejoicing. Didn't see Philip again, but there will be a great reunion in heaven. Last verse. But Philip was found at Azotus, Let's go. To, and passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now let's just finish with our map here. Samaria, he comes down here, meets the Ethiopian, baptizes him on this road, and then afterwards, Philip is snatched away. As far as we can tell from the text, it means that he was, he was raptured, he was, he was transported miraculously, supernaturally. And he finds himself in Azotus and then he, He goes up to Caesarea preaching in all of the villages on the way. Uh, It's about 50 miles from Gaza to Caesarea. And by the way, Caesarea is where Philip settles for the next 20 years or so. Philip the Evangelist settles in Caesarea, which is a beautiful portside city on the Mediterranean. We normally finish our Israel trips there. And um, and we're going to read at the end of Acts 9... That there's a, the, there are the churches, notice this place, Lida and Joppa, you notice those two places? That the, that uh, Peter goes to Lida and he heals, uh, let's think, he heals, um, uh, Ennius, he heals a man, Ennius, And the brothers and sisters from the church in Joppa hear of that, and they have a girl, Dorcas, who needs to be healed, so they ask Peter to go to Joppa to heal it. Now the question is, where did those churches come from? In Lydda and Joppa. And it comes from this. Philip, on his way to Caesarea, is preaching in all the towns and the villages as he went, and these churches are born. And that's where those churches must be. That's our conclusion, must be rooted in. So, Father, thank you for this time tonight in this book of Acts. Thank you for these glorious stories of uh, the gospel going forth beyond Jerusalem into the uttermost parts eventually. Thank you for these wonderful stories of the Ethiopian and all and, oh, let it stir our hearts when we think about evangelism, divine appointments, meeting people on the street. Oh, help us make the first steps of faith just like Philip and lead us in the way to people. For the gospel's sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I don't know if anyone has any... Uh... We wish you well for your good. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, Friday morning, uh, we leave for that. So, Any uh, closing questions on Acts 8 or... Well, Samaria. Unfortunately, the borders aren't on here, but um, Samaria is, a, is, obviously, is obviously a region. Uh, there you go. Yes, yeah, Samaria. The border kind of the border kind of goes like this. So, so typically, if they were going from Jerusalem, they would go over up the Jordan Valley, or they would go this way. They wouldn't pass through it. But a Nazareth, of course, is a is a town of Galilee. You can see the the bottom tip of of Galilee there so but yeah there is sorry um, yeah I see a lot of churches on the TV and various things over the world they seem to speak as part of the Holy Spirit as part of their of their